Luke chapter 10. Let's have a look at this. I hope I can share something with you that might really encourage you. I just want to encourage you today. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell amongst thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, likewise a Levite. When he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell amongst thieves? And he said, and they said, He who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. I just want to just say who I am. I'm, 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 my name is Alwyn. I'm the pastor of uh, Calvary Chapel in Westminster in London. And we've been there about 20 years. And we, re- we live next door to the Queen, actually. We, she, she lives just across the road, just two minutes away. And so I'm expected to walk the corgis for her this morning. But uh, <laughs> I asked for the day off, and she's very gracious. And uh, So here we have the, the Good Samaritan. Now, probably in the side notes of your Bible or your headings, you'll, it might say this account of the Good Samaritan is, is a parable. When it's probably not a parable at all, for you see, every time Jesus spoke a parable, he always kind of introduced it as being a parable, as he spoke a parable unto them. That's what he would usually say, something like that. But This time, this account of the Good Samaritan, it doesn't say he spoke a parable. It simply says a certain man went down the road to Jerusalem, and um, which would suggest that when Jesus spoke of this, he spoke of it probably as being a fact of something that happened, an event that actually took place, and maybe it's something that had just taken place recently and was current news, you know. And so Jesus may have used the story because it was something that right then they were familiar with at that time. So as we get into this, this is very likely a story that you've heard taught on and you meditate on it, you look at it many times, and it's almost taught in the context of what we should do in regards to helping others who are in need from any ethnic background and all of that. And um, we're to treat every human being as being our brother. And how we should be like this Samaritan is with, uh, you know, an enemy, basically. 
And so we should be like that. And that is a good way. That's a great way to look at it. And, uh, and uh, um, it's a good way of interpreting it and, and seeing it. But um, although all of that is true, it's interesting to me that that particular interpretation of it may not actually be the first foremost teaching of it. Because when you look at this section of Scripture, what you find in here is the gospel, and it's a picture of the ultimate Good Samaritan, Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus as you follow it through. And so that's the context. I'm going to look at it because it's just a fascinating picture of Jesus. For example, there's an interesting scripture given in John's gospel, chapter 8, verse 48. And it says, Then they, the religious Jews, answered him and said, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? And they knew that Jesus wasn't a Samaritan ethnically, but that's what they called him. Why would they do that? Well, to call somebody a Samaritan like that It's like using a curse word in that culture. Because the Jews considered Samaritans to be half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. Because back in Jewish history, you know, some 700 plus years previously, the Assyrians came down into Israel and destroyed the ten northern tribes and carried them off into captivity. But there were certain Jews who were left behind and stayed back in that region. And... um, The Assyrians, who were now occupying that place, also ended up marrying some of the remaining Jews that were still there. And so a new group of people emerged, birthed, called Samaritans. And so the Jews, because the Samaritans were half-breeds, along with their forefathers, were the people who had once destroyed Israel, meant that the Jews of Jesus' day despised the Samaritans. It was a put-down, the ultimate put-down, to call somebody a Samaritan. And, um, of course, the Jews who were the enemies of Jesus, the religious leaders, came to him and said, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and you've got a demon? You're demon-possessed. So this is the ultimate insult. It's the ultimate put-down, Samaritan. And what's more, you're demon-possessed. And then you look at that and you take notice how Jesus answered them in John chapter 8, verse 49. Jesus answers, he says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, speaking of the Lord, the Father God, and you are dishonoring me. Notice here, though, that Jesus didn't say, I'm not a Samaritan. He did, not, he did say, I don't have a devil, but he did not say, I, I am not a Samaritan. Which means that although Jesus was not ethnically a Samaritan, but by denying, the fact that, by denying that fact, it does suggest that he did, in a sense, sympathize and identify himself along with the Samaritans. Why? Because... Like the Samaritans, Jesus did have Gentile blood running through his veins. So when they said he was a Samaritan, Jesus didn't push back against that phrase or resist it, but instead he embraced it. He identified himself with the injustices 
that they were suffering because they were half-breeds. And so although he did say, I don't have a devil, he didn't deny that he was a Samaritan. Are you with me on that? You know, he's, he's sympathizing with their plight. He's, he's, he's likening himself with them. And we're going to discover in this story of the Good Samaritan, it, it's a wonderful picture of Jesus. For you see, Jesus was also a half-breed, Gentile blood, Hagar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba, and what's more, both man and God. And he was, like the Samaritans, despised, rejected by the religious Jews, just as the Samaritans were. You see, Jesus here is, is the good Samaritan in our story. Let's, let's have a little read. Verse 30 says, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell amongst these who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. You see, this man had been beaten. He'd been robbed in this story. And the man here that's beaten and robbed represents all of us who are born into this world. Every one of us have been beaten and robbed by the thief and the murderer who Jesus identifies as being the devil. But the key phrase here in our text is he was left half dead. John 10.10, Jesus calls the devil a thief and a murderer from the beginning. He's the father of lies. And so this takes us back to the beginning when he murdered our first parents, the devil. Murdered Adam and Eve. And he did it by lying to them. For God had said to them, in the day that you eat of this, you're going to die. But when Eve was alone, Satan came to her. God knows that when you eat of this fruit from the tree, instead of dying, you're going to become like him. Implication, implication being that God doesn't want anybody to be like him. That's why he's keeping this wonderful thing away from you. He doesn't want you. Satan always lies by implying that by obeying God, you're going to be denied something good in your life. If you, if you obey God, man, you're going to be miserable. He's trying to keep this away from you. He's going to make you miserable. So Eve, Eve took it, the fruit and ate it, and she gave it to her husband, Adam, and he ate it. And when Adam disobeyed God's command, he immediately died. His spirit died that very moment. The day that you eat of it, you're going to die. Spiritual death took place. He was separated. That fellowship, that oneness with God that was there at the beginning was completely broken. The moment he disobeyed God, sin came into the world. And what's more, from the moment they, that they sinned God, against God, they both began then to die physically. So death was a process. An immediate thing that happened spiritually was a process that eventually happened physically. But now that Adam had become spiritually dead to God, it meant that he could not pass on to his descendants something that he did not possess. The eternal spiritual physical life that God intended for human beings was no longer to be able to be passed down to the next generation because of Adam's sin, which now means that the whole of mankind, as, as all the descendants of Adam, although they're born physically alive, were all born Spiritually dead to God. The connection is gone. So in that sense, he left the human race, as it says here, half, 
half dead. Alive physically, dead spiritually. We're all born into this world. Alive physically, but we're all born into this world dead spiritually. In other words, we've been left half dead, just like the man in our story here. The person who lives for pleasure is dead even though they're alive, Timothy tells us. First Timothy, Paul tells us. Alive physically, but dead spiritually. Romans tells us in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. You see, the thief has robbed us all. All of God's creation, all of God's people. He's left us half dead. Dead to God. Dead to the very purpose for which we were created. This man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem represents the city of God, the presence of God. Whereas Jericho was considered to be a cursed city, a sinful city. And what's more, it was a city that was despised by the Jews. Jerusalem, 3,000 feet above sea level, whereas Jericho is 1,000 feet below sea level. So you've got a a long 17-mile downhill journey all the way down. Downhill from Jerusalem, the presence of God, into this cursed place. So we've got a little picture here, I think. That because of the effects of sin, our separation from God, our journey through life, Human beings in this world through life right now. It's just a long downhill journey for everybody. We now enter into this journey we call life, robbed and stripped of the righteousness that gave us our standing with God and connection with God. We've been ripped off. That was all taken from Adam, from man, and all of us who are his descendants. And now, because we've been disconnected from our creator, the one who made us, we are all now, every human being without God is adrift. Adrift in regards to our purpose for being here, having no idea why we're here. We've all been robbed of the very purpose for which we were made, and that is to have fellowship with God who made us. All of that has been stripped away from us, and now we live on this planet not knowing where we came from. We don't know why we're here. We don't know where we're going. We have no clue why we're alive. We're just biding our time until the goal, the the end of the road comes. And now, because sin has separated us from our Creator, the journey through this life that we are now living on, it's a long, downward, meaningless journey without God in it. We're all guessing why we're here. Professor Susan Blackmore, a graduate from St. Hilda's College in Oxford, BA Honours and all that, PDF, ABC, I don't know what they call them. Degree in psychology, physiology, 
can't even say the words without going to school. <laughs> and if you think about evolution, she says, if you really think about evolution and why we human beings are here, you have, come to the, you have to come to the conclusion that we are here for absolutely no reason at all. You have to conclude in the end that nothing matters. And that's how it is without God. If you don't bring God into the equation, that's how life is. We don't know what we're doing. Richard Dawkins, he said this. And this is one of the true things. If there's no God, this is, this is, he says, the universe we observe has no design, no purpose. There is no evil. There is no good. There is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And that if you believe there is no God, that's, what, that's it. That's exactly right. That's the first thing I've believed that he's ever said. If there's no God, that's what you're left with. Blind, pitiless existence. There's no purpose at all for our lives. Whereas when we put God into the equation, and the God of the Bible, and Jesus, our God, you know then, you, you can tell people, you know something? You're not, a, you're not a fluke of nature. You're not some kind of an accident that just happened, man. You're an amazing creation of God. Amazing creation of God. And God loves you. And you're here for a purpose. You've got a purpose. He loves you and he has a destiny for you to fulfill. He's put you here for a reason. And when you have that perspective, you've got something to live for. You've got a reason to be alive. And it gives us an entirely different perspective on life when you put God into it. And especially when you know that God loves you. makes all the difference. And the man walking down the road here represents mankind. Because of his disconnect from his creator, he's robbed us, the devil has robbed us. We're half alive in that we're, we're alive physically, but we're dead spiritually. We're only half, we're half dead. Creation of God is half dead. We've been de-educating our kids for years. For over 50 years, you know, and Telling them that their life is just a big accident with no meaning. Nothing bunch, of, we just happen to be a fluke of nature, if you like, and a bunch of overgrown apes. Then what you're left with is a bunch of kids who just think we're, here, we're just monkeying around. We don't know why we're here. We're on that road from Jerusalem, steep descent. To Jericho, you know. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Priests and Levites couldn't risk becoming ceremonially defiled by even touching a Samaritan even less touching a Samaritan that's covered in blood. We don't want to touch that. That would cause me to become ceremonially unclean, making me unfit to do ministry. So in order to keep their religious ceremonies and traditions, they were willing to avoid this man completely. He was, desperate. he was desperately in need, but they crossed over the other side. This man was half dead. You see, in the story, Jesus is making the point that the religious leaders 
have allowed their religion, their traditions, to become more important than love and compassion and caring for people. They took the law of God and took love out of it. The Pharisees had left out the very heart of what the law of God intended, what God intended the law of God to do, which is to bring people to a place where they just love people. The intention behind all of God's laws are for man's benefit. So when a situation arises where the ceremonial law of God stands in the way of man's basic needs of being taken care of, then human need supersedes keeping the law. God never intended for one minute that the law should get in the way to prevent us from taking care of other people's basic needs because that's what God intended. That's what he intended the law to bring us to. God intends that all of his commandments would bring us to a place where we just love one another. That's the fulfillment of the law. When we love people, we don't have to worry about the rules and regulations because you'll be fulfilling what it is that God requires. Love, it's all encapsulated in that word. Love, love God, love people. And so if a situation arises where the law of God would cause us not to take care of man's basic needs, then by failing to take care of that person for the sake of God's law, that then becomes a violation of God's law. Because the intention behind God's law is to bring us to a place where we take care of one another and love one another. And so not, not to do that would be a contradiction of the intent of the law, which is to love people. You know, in First Samuel, we have a picture of that. Samuel 21, David. They were running up, they were on the run from Saul and with his men and became hungry to the point where they were starving. And they, not just hungry, we, you know, we need a burger. No, they were hungry, they were dying. And when he came to the tabernacle and told the priest he was hungry, the high priest gave him the sacred showbread right from out of the tabernacle itself. And they all ate of the showbread, which was not lawful for them to eat. They broke the law of Moses. And so what does he say to us, you know? But it shows us how that love and compassion are more important than keeping the letter of the law. When there's a need, when people are hurting. We're not to let the law or a detail of the law stand in the way of us taking care of people and loving people. God never intended for a minute the law get in the way of taking care of people who are in need. Because that's what God intends his law to bring us to, to where we love people. And to not to do it would be a violation of the very law itself. The highest moral quality is to save life, to take care of people who are hurting, man. But to do nothing and allow life to be destroyed for the sake of keeping the letter of the law, that's a sin. So when people like Jehovah's Witnesses or some parts of the church refuse to allow a doctor to save a life for somebody who's dying because it's a lack of faith or whatever it might be, that's murder to let somebody die. God intends that all of his commandments would bring us to a place where we love people and take care of people. The scriptures tell us that the love is the, is the end of the law. 
or it's the summation of God's law. That's, that's what God's law is intended to bring us to. When love is agape, love is not a feeling. It's a choice we make because we want to be obedient to God. And when that's at work in your, in your life, you fulfill. It's the end of the law. That's what the law of God wants to bring us to, where we just love people. But the Pharisees, no, they left that part of the law out. They'd allowed legalism to be more important than love. So much so that they crossed over to the other side of the road in order to avoid the man that was half dead. But, verse 33, here comes Jesus. A certain Samaritan. This is where it gets interesting to me because it's Jesus. They said, you're a Samaritan, you have a demon. Jesus says, yeah, I don't have a demon, but I'm not going to say anything about the Samaritan bit. He came to somebody like me, somebody like you, who was beaten, robbed, left for dead, half dead, ripped off by the great thief and robber, murderer, the devil. Jesus comes along, and what does he do? He says he he has compassion on us. And he says, verse 33, he came to where he was, you know. Oh, man, did he do that? When Jesus came into this world, he was seated on God's throne in the glory of heaven. And he came to this world in order to take him upon himself the form of a servant. Although Jesus is and was and is always going to be God in his nature, He did, though, relinquish all of that glory that was rightfully his. All of that authority, absolute authority of being God. He relinquished it. And instead, he had to come to this place to take upon himself the limitations of being a man. He humbled himself. He came to where we're at. To take that position of becoming a perfect servant to the Father. You see, in order to pay for our sin... The Son of God, prior to his incarnation, was spirit. God is spirit. But he had to empty himself of all of that. And he had to empty himself of having the right to exercise his deity as being God. And he surrendered that to being simply a man like Adam. He had to limit himself to being a man. But more than that, in order for God's divine justice to be done in regards to paying for sin, Jesus then had to succeed where Adam failed in order for him then to qualify as being our sin bearer. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and so in order to pay and undo the damage that Adam had done by choosing to sin, another man The last Adam, the second man, had to come into the world who would not sin when given the same choice that Adam had. He had to be put in the same situation. Another man had to come now who didn't fail like Adam did. This is why Jesus could say, the Father is greater than I. Because even though he was equal to the Father in nature, in his, in his being, 
Jesus stepped down from his throne in heaven, taking upon himself the limitations of becoming a human being, and said, I do always those things that please the Father, not myself. I'm a man. I'm pleasing Father, Father God. So that then he would be able to qualify as being our sin-bearer in order to satisfy the divine justice of God that was demanded because of Adam's sin. He had to undo what Adam did. He had to do it as a man. He relinquished his glory. He relinquished his absolute power. You see, Jesus has to beat the devil. Jesus, when he beat the devil, he didn't beat him as God beating the devil. But he had to beat the devil as being a man like Adam. That's how he had to do it. Otherwise, divine justice would not have been met. And then by doing that, by beating the devil as a man, he then has the, the kudos to become the perfect sacrifice for our sin. For Jesus to secure our salvation, he must be tempted in all points, but then he has to succeed where Adam fails in order to qualify and pay for our sins and undo the damage that Adam brought into the world. But then, after Jesus was raised from the dead, ascended back into heaven, he's no longer in that position of being a servant now. After his victory over sin and death at the cross, he was then a man restored back as a man. He was the God who was restored back to the throne of God. He ascended back into heaven, taking back his rightful position as being seated on the throne of God with all authority, all glory, again, to take a hold of the same equal power that he had in eternity with God the Father prior to him becoming a servant. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Psalm 110, David declares, The Lord Jehovah, capital letters, Yahweh, said to my Lord Adonai, speaking of the Messiah, Come, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Speaking of the time when sin is completely vanquished in the new heavens, the new earth. In other words, the Messiah, this man, will be raised from the dead and ascend back to heaven, taking back his rightful position, seated on the throne of God, where he once again takes of the same equality, it's the same glory in eternity, for all eternity, as the Father That's what David is saying there in that little sentence, Psalm 110. If you get your head around that man, he's saying that Jesus is God. The Messiah is God, seated on the throne for all eternity. That's our our Jesus. And what it does, that that little verse there in that psalm, it just causes you to worship him, you know. Jesus spoke about this in John 17, 5, as he's looking at the cross. He says, Father, I long to be clothed once again with the glory that I had with you before the world was. As Jesus was contemplating the cross, he's looking once again to be clothed in the eternal glory that he surrendered. And so it was that when he ascended back to heaven, the Father says, come on, sit at my right hand to be clothed once again with the glory that I had with you before the world was. 
Father, I long to be clothed again with the glory that I had with you before the world was. So Jesus, our Samaritan, in our story, came to where he was, where we are. And when he saw him, when Jesus saw us, he had compassion on people like me. And then it says in verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds. You know, when the Lord created mankind, he intended us to be clothed in absolute perfect righteousness. That's how he wanted us to be for eternity. But when Adam chose to sin, those garments of righteousness, they were stolen from us. We've all been robbed of our righteous standing with God. And the robes of our righteous standing with God have been ripped from us. And we are by the thief and the robber, Satan. And this, it says this concerning Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord, is, this is in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus. This is, this is a messianic statement. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal, and the word there is actually to bind up the brokenhearted. And that's a text from Isaiah 61, verse 1, and and it's a figurative way of describing someone who with their own hands has taken their own garments and has then torn them apart in order to wrap them around the broken heart. That's the idea there, to bind up the brokenhearted. The Messiah, Jesus, has taken his own garments of righteousness and he's wrapped them around our broken hearts. And so it is with his own hands and with his own care for us, our Samaritan, Jesus. He took his own righteous garments and he was torn apart that he might bind the wounds that the devil has caused when he left us half dead. That's the idea. And then Isaiah goes on to say, he has covered me with his robe of righteousness. He's wrapped it around us with his own hands. So our good Samaritan has come to our rescue. He's come to heal the wounds that the devil has created and creates in the world. And then what the devil had stolen from us, Jesus with his own hands has replaced what the enemy has stolen And he's clothed us with his own righteousness, which is of faith in him. His garments of salvation. My standing with God now is such I stand before him. I can't get my head around it, but we stand before him in perfect righteousness. That's how he sees us. It's something he's done. So that we can be free. You know, from all condemnation. That's our standing. Complete in Jesus. That's what we are. 
He's clothed me with the garments of salvation, covered me with a robe of righteousness. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Verse 34, so he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Oil, as you know, is a picture of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Wine is a symbol of blood. Jesus says, this is my blood. He poured out the wine and he communed with, as he communed with his disciples. Oil and wine, spirit and blood. Now that we've been clothed in his garments of salvation, he pours the, he pours the oil of the Holy Spirit which he gives to us in order for us then to be able to love God, which is against our carnal nature. He equips us. He enables us to love God. God working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He does that. That's something he's put inside of us. It's the Holy Spirit. And then the wine, after being clothed with his righteousness, which gives us perfect standing with God, the blood then is given to us continually when we keep failing. I remember when I failed. But his blood avails for me. Wine, of course, has alcohol in it. It's an antiseptic which purifies and continually cleanses us from sin. If you fail, the blood of Jesus is there. He will never let you go if you are truly born again. He'll come after you. It might hurt you to do it. But you know, in the end, it'll be worth it. He does it because he loves you. My dad used to spank me. He'd probably be arrested these days. But he did it because he loved me. I knew the intent behind that spank. It wasn't to beat me. It was to correct me, and I knew it. It was me that was in the wrong, not my dad. And what does our Samaritan do? Well, he takes us and he lifts us, and he puts us where he should sit. So he went to, in verse 34, bandaged his wounds, pouring in the oil of the wine, and set him on his own animal. And so it is. This is the beautiful thing about our salvation, you know. When he starts to deal with us and cleanses and works with us, he wants you and I to be at rest in regards to our relationship with him. He lifts us up. He takes us away. He takes away the burden of sin. And then he wants us to rest in what he's done. And then what he does, he just walks with us along the way while we ride. And now we can rest in the finished work of the cross. And as we do that, he says, look, I'll just walk along with you, and you just rest in what I've done for you. After he's bandaged our wounds and poured in the oil and the wine, we are now seated where he is seated. He's placed us in a position where we are now seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, which means that we are eternally secure. We're seated there already in the heart and mind of God. We are already there. Ephesians 4.30, we read, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed until the day of your redemption. And in Revelation 20, verse 3, speaking of the devil, he says, He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up 
And I like that when you shut him up, the devil, and set a seal upon him. That's the same word. Important, because we need to know that the same seal that's placed on the devil is the exact same that he's placed upon us. In other words, the seal, Satan can't break it, and neither can we. We've been sealed until the day of redemption. Redemption means the redemption of the body until Jesus comes and takes us home. We're sealed. Satan has no power to break the seal. If you're a born-again Christian, once that seal is on you, man, if you are truly born again, that seal is on you forever. He will not let you go. He loves you too much for that. Once it's on, it's on. He's, he's going to make sure you make it. He's going to make sure you get to the right destination. He will not let you go. He will not abandon you. God will never break his providence. God always delivers. God loves you more than you do. You know, he loves you more than you love you. And that's saying something. <laughs> and he loves, you, he loves you more than what you can do for him. God is faithful. He's called you into fellowship. And he will complete the work that he has begun. He never leaves a job half finished. There's so much pressure in life these days. And so much uncertainty. I've never known days like this that we're in right now. This planet that we're on. And God said, listen, I know this is a fallen world. And there's a lot of pressure on all of you as Christians and myself as well, you know. There's troubles here. There's troubles over there. Crime, violence, gay agenda. Wars, rumors of wars. On top of that, then, you've got your personal things going on in your own life that you've got to deal with that nobody else knows about. And God says, you know what? I understand all of that stuff that you deal with, all of it. I also know that you've got to sustain your life by the sweat of your brow. You've got to go work and get a living. I know all that kind of thing going on in your life every single day. Here in this fallen world, I know that that is your lot. You've got a lot to deal with. But then God says to us, you know what? When you think of your relationship with me, he says, that's the one place where I want you to be completely at rest. I want you to be at complete rest there. This relationship that we have, I want you to be at complete rest. The Lord would say to us all, look, I understand you've got these things going on in your life. But then I don't want you to look at my relationship with you thinking, and then on top of all of that, I've got to do all this now to make sure I keep myself saved. I've got to stay saved. I've now got to work a hundred times harder in order to stay saved. No, no, no. The same faith that saved you in the beginning is the same faith that keeps you right through to the end. It's a gift of God. It's grace. I know he's working on us. I know we're not finished with yet. But even in the process of being, becoming like Jesus, and when we fall, we are saved by his grace eternally. If we look at the Lord with that kind of thinking, we've got to stay saved, we've got to do this, then our relationship with God ceases to be a rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. He's our rest. If that's how we think about our relationship, then 
Instead of him being a rest for us, it becomes an extra burden. And it's not. It's not. If we think that on top of everything else, we've not got to, now got to try to live up to some kind of extra load that's placed upon our shoulders, then our relationship with God becomes a miserable burden. We can't handle it. We've got too much for us. But God says, no, I want my people to be at rest with me. He says, I rest in my love for you. He wants us to rest in his love for us. He wants to, he wants to be the, the very source, a constant source of peace and security for you and I. Not like a, an ogre who's waiting for you to slip and go, bop. He's not like that. He wants to be a constant source of peace and joy. Even when we fall, he wants us to know we can come back and stand up again. He takes us, he lifts us, he puts us in his own seat. And as we do that, he says to us, look, you ride, you ride, you take a, you take a load off. I'll walk with you. And then, verse 34, So he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on the oil, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took, and took care of him. Now, the, the inn. Jesus takes him to a place where he can grow strong and be healed and it's a place where he can get well and convalesce and be made whole. You see, the Good Samaritan, Jesus, brings us, brings us to the point where he puts us in his church. It's an inn, a rest. This is a place where Jesus brings people who are beat up, kicked around by life. This is where he brings people who are wiped out and who are half dead. He brings them to a place where they can grow and where they can be made strong and be healed and made whole. This is where Jesus brings people to be loved on. It's not a place where people are to be looked down on. It's a place where people who have been beaten up can be looked on and lifted up, built up. Well, if you're going to allow those kind of folks into this church, man, if that, that kind of dress like that, we've got earrings on, on everything that's dangling and tattoos everywhere, there's a button missing. Then I'm out of here, man. Well, if you feel that way, then off you go, you know. Because this inn is, is a place where people come to knowing that people are ready, who are already in the inn. They, they know that the people already in it are just like they are, you know. We were just like that. Just like they are now, that, that's where we came from, my friend. Come on in. And so they're not going to be the kind of people who are going to be looking down their noses to find fault with us because they'll be busy. If they're genuine, they'll be looking down their noses to find fault with their own selves first. You know? The church is to be a place where Jesus wants people to be brought to who are half dead and who are going to be looked after, you know? Well, I thought this was a church. I thought this was a place where we have high art and music and meditation and crosses and statues. No, it's an inn. Jesus takes him to the place where he can get strong, healed, convalesce. But then now in verse 35, on the next day when Jesus, our Samaritan, departed, he, he took two denarii. A denarii was a, a day's wage. 
at that time. So I take this to mean that he's going to be there for a couple of days. Took him to Denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him. So Jesus provides two days, I think. While I go away for a couple of days. You get the picture? Yeah. And then he says, whatever more you spend, I'll come again and I'll repay you for that. Isn't that cool? A thousand years is as a day. A day is a thousand years, First Peter 3, 8, which means our Samaritan, our Savior, will be gone for a couple of thousand years, a couple of days for him, which tells me he's coming back any time. You know? When you compare that with that little prophecy in Hosea 6, 2, he says, Lord, the Lord turned... The Lord turned away from Israel for two days. This is Hosea 6.2. The Lord turned away from Israel for two days, but how that early on on the third day, he will return. He's going to put his focus back on the Jews after two days early in the third day, and he's going to revive them, which is exactly what the Lord's going to do when the church has been raptured. After two days in the third day, He's coming back, man. And then in Luke 13, 32, they came to Jesus and said, Herod is out to get you. You better get out of here. And Jesus said, you tell him that today and tomorrow I'm performing signs. Today and tomorrow and wonders. But on the third day, that's when I'll be perfected. That's a mysterious passage. Jesus says, I'm going to be working miracles for two days on the third day, perfected. If you take Jesus literally, it doesn't make much sense because when Jesus said that, there's no record of anything special happening. But then after two days, Jesus wasn't perfected or completed. He wasn't crucified or resurrected. So what Jesus said there, if you take it, it doesn't make... I mean, I might be wrong on this one. But when you compare that to Hosea, the fact that the Lord would be working two days, 2,000 years amongst the Gentiles, bringing people to salvation, and then after those two days... His work amongst the Gentiles will be finished and how that the early in the third day is going to be perfected and glorified in the kingdom age. It begins to make sense to me. And here our Samaritan Jesus says, I'm going away for a couple of days. I want to depart. I'm putting this broken man into your custody, into the inn, and I want you to take care of him. And then on the next day, verse 35, when he departed, he took out two dinars. That we've read that. But whatever more you spend, when I come back again, I will repay you. This is the final thing. Jesus says to the innkeeper, anything that you spend above and beyond what is expected, then I will repay you when I come back. Anything you spend above and beyond what was given to you, I'll repay back when I return. In other words, if you choose to sacrifice and choose to love and be more generous and more loving and compassionate and giving more than just saying, thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul, oh, you'll save your soul. You'll go to heaven. But if you go beyond that and sacrifice and love people above and beyond what is required by the Lord, above and beyond, then he, when he comes back, he's going to reward you for it. When he comes back after those two days, he's coming back, and he's coming back with rewards. 
And we've got to understand that this as Christians, you know, what we are here as servants of Jesus affects what we're going to be there in eternity. Our present situation and how we live for Jesus in it is going to affect us for all eternity. It will determine what we will be there. And I promise on that day, you're not going to be saying, oh, what a drag, I could have watched TV instead of going to the prayer meeting. When I watch the game on Sunday instead of going to, to fellowship with my brothers and I could have gone to the bar instead of going to fellowship. No, you're going to say, I'm so glad I made those sacrifices. I went to the prayer meeting instead of watching TV or whatever it might be. I'm so glad I chose to do above and beyond the minimum requirements. I'm so glad I, I, I chose to seek first the kingdom of God, you know, because when you see his rewards for your service that went above and beyond, you're not going to, you're going to say, you know something, this is amazing what Jesus has given to me. In that time when that day comes, when you see him, when you look him in the eye, the generosity and the grace of God, it's just mind-blowing. We, we have things awaiting us that we can't believe that's going to be ours. The importance of rewards, you know, and to think in those terms. Spending above and beyond what Jesus says, and it will cause you to fall on your knees and worship him on that day. Paul said, Do not be weary of well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. So I just want to encourage you with this story about a missionary. You might have heard it, don't know, but it's worth a second, a second glance. Missionary who had given most of his life in service to the Lord on the mission fields in Africa. He was getting ready to return back to the United States from his years of mission on the mission field. And so it happened that one of the U.S. presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, was also over in Africa at that time. He'd been hunting wild game. And uh, he was a bit of a hunter, and, uh, and so they both came back on the same boat. They pulled back into the harbor, and there was this giant fanfare and the band playing, balloons and streamers. Everyone was applauding president who had just been on some hunting trip, and yet here's this guy who's a missionary, beaten up by life, who had given most of his life to the service of the Lord, and there wasn't one person to welcome him, not one person to thank him, and the president went off in his luxury, you know, in luxury, and the missionary went off on some cheap, into some cheap hotel somewhere. And the missionary says, you know what, darling? This doesn't seem right to me. Here's this president, comes home, he's just been hunting, doing nothing of any value, really, and they're all big fanfare. And here's me, I've given my life to the ministry and the Lord. And he gets all of that, I come home and I get nothing. And at that very moment, his wife turned to him and said, Yeah, that's true, sweetheart, but you know the difference is, you're not home yet. Yep. Love you guys. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful time in this wonderful church. The people here are just amazing. It's so friendly, and the staff here, Joe, 
Just thank you for the grace and the love that's shown in these kinds of places. And I know your your churches are the same. Many of you guys have that same thing going on. Pray for your people, Lord. Pray for your servants. Help us to just keep the love of Jesus in our heart and let it flow to other people. Let, let, Let that be the motive that drives us in what we're doing. Not position or status or names or titles, but We just want to hear those words, Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen.